0: Welcome to the Dad Work Podcast. My name is Kurt Storing, your host and the founder of Dad Work. My guest today is Pierre Azam, and we go deep talking about when to seek therapy versus coaching to level up your life and why seeking help is fundamental to healing and growth, lessons learned from Pierre's experience as a psychiatrist who worked in palliative care, depression in men, including postpartum depression in dads, which affects many more men than you might think, and how to get through it, including a lot of Pierre's own experiences with this a grounded approach to mindfulness and connection, how to support other men in your life who may be struggling and emotional intelligence and how you can improve your own. Pierre Azam is a psychiatrist turned professional coach who specializes in working with men. After spending nearly two decades in medicine and mental health care, Pierre founded Braver Man, a platform to promote men's mental health awareness, target male isolation, and help men to cultivate powerful presence and the mindset to thrive. I really enjoyed being able to talk to Pierre because, as you just heard, he was a psychiatrist, he's a medical doctor, and he experienced a lot in his practice over the years and is now using that. Knowledge to help men thrive rather than meeting men in the most dire circumstances in their lives. He's able now to understand where men are coming from and help them move forward into the greatness that they are seeking. And so we talk a lot about Pierre's experiences, and he's just, yeah, he's a grounded, down to earth man. And I really enjoy being able to get his feedback on this from an expert perspective, which uh, in the coaching space, particularly, is all too rare. So I really appreciated that from Pierre. If you've been enjoying this podcast, I would really, really appreciate it if you could just take a pause. If you're listening to this on Apple, scroll down to the podcast app with Dad Work Podcast and leave a rating and review. It's probably the best, easiest, and uh, of course, cheapest way to support dad work and help this get into the hands of other men. I'd also like to invite you to join our free 14-day email course called Better Man, Better Dad. You can find that at our website, dad.work. Type that into your browser dad.work. Instead of .com, it's .work, da ork You can find that on the homepage. Simply add your first name and your email, and that will be sent automatically to your inbox over the next two weeks. And uh, we have just had a ton of men find a lot of value in that. It's just basically all the things that I have done broken down into uh, easily accessible and actionable steps uh, to take me from miserable, angry, not a great dad into being a calm, confident leader. So that's at dad.work. You can sign up and get that in your inbox today. With that being said, we're going to dive into this conversation with Pierre Azam. I'm here with Pierre Azam. Thank you so much, Pierre, for joining me. I am excited by this. Like I said, I saw you on Instagram and I was just like, man, this guy seems to get it. Whatever it is, there's like this fundamental awareness that I thought I saw in you. So I'm excited to talk because you've got a very interesting background that I'd love to dive into. So welcome and thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So the first thing that I'm curious about is you seem to have been quite deep in academia and medicine, healthcare, And my question is, why the switch to coaching? Like I read that you had quite a seemingly distinguished career with awards, promotions, and now you are a coach for men. So why was that switch made from uh, sort of a more medical therapeutic setting to being a
1: coach? Yeah, I can't say looking back that it was uh, super planned out and that I'd intended in exactly this sort of linear experience, but I suppose there are very few things in life that I can look back to and, and define in that way. One thing that was very common in my experience in serving as a psychiatrist was, uh, the, in many ways, the interface of masculinity and mental health. Part of that was just my own stuff. i grown up with OCD and pretty gnarly recurrent episodes of depression that were not really identified. I didn't really identify them uh, or even sort of allow myself to in full until I was in medical school. And even then there was a big, there were big barriers to my own self-reflection. But a small portion of my work happened at the interface of psychiatric care and perinatal care. And that was with moms. And that wasn't the primary, my primary gig by any stretch, but it was a small portion that gave me a bit of insight into the experience for dad. And in many ways, afforded a reflection of how healthcare and how mental healthcare in particular impacts men at these times of major life transition. And it allowed me also to reflect a bit upon my own experience of being a man and also navigating the experience of mental health care, my own mental health care, that of other people, navigating the system of uh, treating mental illness. And I felt a really strong push and calling to support men in their own experiences of mental illness, but also in their experiences of mental wellness. What does it mean to be, to be well, to show up in full, to experience joy and peace and positivity? And I realized, too, that a big portion of uh, mental health care, and I suppose my training, was very fluent in helping people to get from a state of illness to a state of relative wellness. Uh, But it didn't mean then that I could help men who might not be ailing with a particular mental illness to show up in full as the best version of themselves for their families or for their careers or for their communities or for themselves. And so that piqued my interest around coaching and sought coaching training and certification in large part to complement what I was doing as a psychiatrist. I didn't really expect to, to make a big transition, but found increasingly that I was interested in working with men uh, at all stages and walks of life, fatherhood, and other, other important shifting points or pivot points. And so fatherhood in many ways was what led me to become, not personally, but fatherhood, working with new dads was initially what led me to become interested in learning more about coaching and helping men in this space. The actual sort of transition initially was slow and kind of deliberate. And then, of course, it became clear that the only thing that was holding me back was my own fear feeling like I was somehow an imposter or uh, like I wasn't ready and I needed to know more or I needed to, to learn more in order to do what I'm doing. And the reality was it was all there. The doing was very much in the, in a part of the preparedness to show up in full at any given point to help new fathers and to help men at all stages and walks of life. And so I jumped right in and, Two thousand twenty, right at the start of the pandemic,
0: and and so could you maybe go into a little bit of the differentiation between when my when men might seek coaching versus psychiatric care.
1: Yeah, for sure, and I think that's a this is a great and important question, and one I think that doesn't always get a tremendous amount of attention because uh, in many ways, especially I suppose on social media or in kind of the technologic shared spaces, there's not a tremendous amount of differentiation between mental health and mental illness. There's still a lot of stigma around mental illness that keeps people from speaking out or knowing what to say when faced with the reality of mental illness, whether that's in themselves or other people. Um, The things that I notice in particular are different for me when I'm as a psychiatrist versus a coach, some similarities, but probably the biggest differences are in many ways, when men are struggling to a point that there's a tremendous amount of distress or impairment in showing up at home or at work, there are symptoms that feel like, um, not akin to myself. They're not, the way I typically show up. They may be pervasive, show up in all elements of life or persistent. If we're thinking about depression, for example, it may feel like a big shift from who I am and how I show up normally. It may impact the way I show up with family, the way I show up to my work. I may miss days at work, or I may show up really irritably with family. Uh, it may feel out of my control and I may not have all of the tools and resources to, to go about changing that experience or modifying that experience. And often that is, it feels, it feels like I need more help. Like it reaches a state of pathology. Then, then obviously I think in those, in those Moments, it's often uh, more helpful to seek more traditional forms of mental health care, whether that's therapy or seeking treatment through medication. In a lot of ways, what's differentiated coaching for me has been that many of the men with whom I work may have seen or are currently seeing therapists, psychiatrists, counselors in other settings, uh, but they're often. Uh, not struggling acutely with those symptoms or they're working on symptoms alongside a desire to make changes within their lives that move them forward or into the future. So probably the biggest differentiators for me are that there's a greater sense of identifying what fulfillment and thriving look like and taking me from a place of relative wellness and helping men to go from a place of relative wellness to thriving or to greater fulfillment, as opposed to treating pathology. And probably in the, in the actual logistics of it, big differences include that I don't dig too far into the past. There are obviously patterns of behavior and thought and emotion that are rooted in our past, But the focus of coaching is very much on on how I'm showing up right now, how I want to show up in the future, and also not necessarily why, what experiences from my past have led me to this place, but perhaps an awareness to, to patterns that have developed from the past that are showing up now, and how I might want to use them Or modify them in some way in the future. So it's much more future thinking or future focus and often tends not to dig into the why too much coaching.
0: Right. Okay. So for men who are currently experiencing negative side effects from mental illness or, you know, make negative mental health, that's when they might seek a therapist or a counselor and coaching on the other hand is sort of taking, I'm thinking about it like a, in a, a pendulum. So on the one end of the pendulum, you're really struggling and you just can't seem to move forward without help. And you sort of swing into moderate wellness, you know, you might say, yeah. and coaching, it seems takes you from that center point to the other end of the spectrum, which is thriving, which is hitting those goals, which is really transforming your life for the better, assuming that you're no longer, like you said, acutely suffering. Is that sort yeah. of the gist of it then? okay,
1: Yeah, that's a great way to describe it.
0: Okay, amazing. <laughs> Um, One of the questions I had based on your career is uh, whether there are lessons that you learned from your work in palliative care that can apply to how we live our lives now. Because you've know, you heard things about regrets of the dying. You've heard of, I think there was a a man on one of the Tim Ferris podcasts, I can't remember his name right now, uh, who worked in settings like this, where he witnessed um, suffering and death, but he came away from that with so many lessons. And so I'm wondering from someone who has worked in that setting, were there lessons that you took or lessons that you now share with your clients from seeing people in that stage of life?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think the things that I've taken for myself in the way that I show up with other men and other and clients is is often that I may not have the answers. In many cases, I won't single-handedly have the answers. I don't walk into the sort of coaching experience with an assumption that I'm um, that I've got it all figured out for the other man or even for myself. But often that recognizing I don't have to have just the right thing to say that my focus is on being present for the other person and helping to create a container or space for the other individual to experience what they're what they're facing in the moment without necessarily trying to undermine it in any way or find words that will take it away. And so I think that's for, for me, my experience of navigating situations in which in many ways, there was no way for me to make suffering go away. It was a matter of really allowing people to fully face in a safe way the experiences that they're having. Now, from the standpoint, I suppose, of seeing my patients at the end of life or experiencing serious illness, life-limiting illness, there are certainly um, elements of regret that we all face. And often they are, and some of them are sort of trite and maybe over over-identified but they're often really in the realm of connection Mm. and this is true i think for men and women alike the challenge for many men i suppose is that in a lot of ways our more traditional norms and ideologies around masculinity don't don't necessarily drive us to focus on our connection they might drive us to focus on performance, self-sustainability, self-reliance. But often themes at the end of life tend to be around seeking peace and communicating important things to people who matter, who may not have felt connected to us. And so that tends, I think, to be the case more frequently for men Because there are often a lot of regrets around not connecting in full. And often that is often as far as my experience goes, I suppose. Uh, So it's anecdotal. But often that is fathers regretting not being as available and connected to their kids. And so I think it, it probably, in retrospect though I've never really thought about it in this way, so I appreciate this question, has compelled me to support men in connecting with their families without necessarily having to show up in a specific or maybe um, expected way, but being present, being fully connected.
0: Right. And could you go into that a little bit? Because like you said, there's no prescriptive way to do this. It's not, you know, this, you follow this, suddenly you're connected and you're a great dad. It's going to be different for everyone, but there is this sense, like you said, just lack of connection. And so for the men listening, I mean, just imagine briefly that you're at the end of your life. What are the things you're going to regret? And like you say, this is, it's done over and over again. You hear everyone talk about it. What are you going to regret? Well, you know, what changes can you make now? And I love these little hacks almost that When you get hit with the two-by-four or the Mack truck, as we've talked about on the show before, you can make a change, but it hurts big time. But a small hack is just thinking like, when I'm at the end of my life, what will I regret or miss or whatever? And I think this is a great opportunity for men listening to go there in their own minds. And so assuming that you want to connect more deeply with your family, how can men start to do that? And I know it's not, like you said, prescriptive but what are some of the ways that you have helped men to establish presence and just sitting in whatever that looks like for their family this is so hard for guys who like you said aren't conditioned to connect so like how do we how do we even start doing this
1: yeah i think in most cases it's a matter of just sitting and being present with ourselves and connecting to our own experience and this is a tough one because when i work with guys most of the time, when I invite an awareness to what's happening in your head and your heart and your body, there's often a an expectation of an agenda. Where do we go from here? what's the best possible outcome? Um, am I doing this right It's sort of like the 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 common experience around mindfulness where or meditation where you ask yourself, Am I doing this right? Well, right is just in the process. The whole point is just to be and to sit with the experiences that we're having and to to name them. We don't get, most men don't get an invite to do that. And so it feels uncomfortable. It's a lot of judgment that comes up. And so I invite that awareness um, around the judgment that will emerge for us when we try to just be present. I should be doing this. I should be doing that. I need to be doing this or I'm not doing this well enough. Where, like, where the fuck are we going? What's happening? Um, All these things emerge and they're naturally, they naturally distract us. And so, uh, A lot of it is often just practicing using mindfulness in the moment when we're working together to sort of build the muscle memory around how to be present in full, how to feel connected, or how to be available such that and aware such that I invite connection with my family without necessarily trying to do five other things at once, Um, whether that's play on my device or judge myself as good enough, not good enough. I think it's perhaps the most overused hack of all, but it really is practicing mindfulness in a way that feels approachable. And oftentimes I'll use uh, I'll use awareness to or experience with with networks of attention to explain, some of the facets, some of the tenets of mindfulness. So it doesn't feel so, um, maybe so esoteric or woo to men. And that is that single tasking is often the way to go when it comes to engagement. And that even if that is connecting, even if that's not necessarily ticking something off of it, a checklist or a to-do list, um, that if you're interested in connecting and being present, it's just a matter of setting the intention, recognizing distractions will emerge, and returning back to that intention. You're not going to do it right the first time, do it right, in quotes, the first time. Uh, But that's not the point. You just go back to it. And the it in most cases for men tends to be returning to whatever is happening in front of me, looking at my kids, opening my heart, being present with the family at dinner time, changing a diaper, being with my wife or partner. Thoughts, sensations, judgments, they'll emerge. And the whole point is to return back to the anchor which is connection or presence or openness whatever it is that allows you to to be most available
0: i love that thank you i i love using the point of attention or point of awareness rather than in a meditative setting when you're maybe focusing on your breath or you're noticing your experience as consciousness whatever you sort of focus on during yeah. meditation just taking the actions that you are performing as part of connection, as those awarenesses and knowing again, like with meditation, the goal is not to do it right. It's to sit with it and continue to come back to that object of awareness. And so to yeah. continue to come back to connection, like, man, that seems if you've been meditating, even for just like a week or something, you sort of get this idea. So to bring it into everyday life, that seems really powerful. And yeah. again, it's going to be hard because like most men are hardwired to perform and do the next task. But, if the next task is to come back, even if you have to set it like that, okay, my task right now on my to do list is just to notice when I'm not in connection and bring it back that seems
1: amazing. Yeah. I love that thank you yeah, of course, of course, in a lot of ways, I mean you know, I love that you put it in that way because it feels because it feels like then meditation is sort of training for you to show up mindfully in whatever you do, whether that's your work or your engagement with another person.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um is has there any been I don't know the answer to this, so maybe it's uh you know not the right tree to to bark up, but was there a dark night of the soul for you in your journey like that led you to going down this path? Because yeah. this for me was sort of a labor of love. I needed to do this kind of work. I was unsatisfied and this was taking up so much of my own personal life doing this work on myself and with other men that I sort of went like man, I need to share some of this that's worked for me because I've transformed my life with the help of so many other men. I just can't help but share it. So I'm just curious, was there something in your life that sort of got you into this to begin with? Was something motivating you at a very core level to do this work? Uh, Or was it simply being around the dads that you were with?
1: I think most of my work has probably been driven by my own... I suppose my own experience of suffering or my own experience of facing challenges, cognitive challenges that I might create for myself, emotional challenges in fluctuations of mood, or at least periods of pretty dark depression, and also kind of never feeling like I allowed myself to feel good enough. Or perhaps that I was, um, that I throughout most of my life have been judging myself for how I show up and how what that means for me relative to how I see myself as a man, but also how I might see an ideal in being a man. I, I think it's an under. Discuss topic around mental health the traditional norms of masculinity and how they show up But for me, there were so many I don't think there was a single one Kurt, I think to your point looking back there were handfuls of experiences where I undermined myself for not being The man I thought I should be And I just saw that so frequently in my work as a psychiatrist. I saw it so much in uh, in the men I saw. And in a lot of ways, I was... So most of my work as a psychiatrist was really spent in the general hospital setting. And it was spent with people with medical illnesses. And often that was life-limiting, chronic, and so it meant that there was often not a select, sort of a selection bias for who I saw, and so it wasn't just a matter of people coming to me for help, but often that other physicians would, would send referrals or ask me to see someone in the hospital who might be experiencing um, either uh, in many cases, that was a, a sort of neurologic challenges or neurologic il- illness um, but who were who seemed to be suffering in some way behaviorally cognitively emotionally and so it meant that I saw many men who might not normally go in to see mental health professionals and so faced with the stigma of Kind of being a psychiatrist walking into a patient's room, in many cases unexpected, it sort of allowed me to think of my own experience in getting mental health care, the sort of feeling of not being able to do it on my own, the self judgment that emerges. It emerges quite often for men, and I could relate to it. The sensation of not being able to control that I couldn't get out of bed, or I couldn't do the things that I normally loved doing, because I was facing depression periods of my life. I could empathize for more than just sort of putting myself theoretically in the shoes of many men who were suffering. Um, I felt it, and so yeah, there were moments of recognizing, you know, even the work that I was in the work that I was doing, that mental health care doesn't always show up in the most approachable way to men. And so I I think increasingly, I found myself feeling compelled to change that in just for myself. I, I realize I have to maintain humility here. I can't Sort of single-handedly changed the face of mental health care for men, but I could do it for myself um, and the men with whom I work. But probably more than anything, it became overcoming my own fear of doing so. Changing my path. I was on a very sort of traject- clear trajectory around being a physician. And it was fucking scary to jump out of that trajectory. And I was held back by a lot of my own personal fears. And I realized uh, in those moments when I feared uh, making this transition that it was, I realized how important this mission is. I would see more men who were suffering or hear of more stats about rising rates of um, male loneliness, male suicide, um, and I found myself compelled to, to make this shift. And so in part, yes, it's sort of like I suppose I had many <laughs> Dark night stories, but more than anything, it was just seeing a lot of suffering and also seeing a lot of good that happened when men could be vulnerable together when we sort of let our guards down and we allow ourselves to be more real and less prescribed.
0: Yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that. And you. man, I, I just see men as like this untapped resource when they're not able to share vulnerably with other men, like you say, and it's as though we're not supposed to be like this, we're not allowed to be like this, whatever the case mm-hmm. is. and then you like you're you're a human <laughs> you know men are humans and humans feel emotions and when you share those things, um, I mean I, I love the the phrase feel it to heal it mm-hmm. and like you you've got to go through and share these things with other men where and when appropriate. And so I love that you sort of saw this as being part of that to give men this, um, approval as it were, or validation to go there because it unlocks so much. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in the men that I've worked with in men's group or otherwise, just like being able to go there is like this unleashed potential. And suddenly it's like, oh, there's so much good here that we can get into, and one of the things that you mentioned was depression. And that's actually one of the things I had on my list that I wanted to talk to you about. Yeah, sure. I've, I've seen this on your Instagram a lot. And I want to start with postpartum depression for, me, yeah, for dads. Um, because like I think if we start specifically and then maybe broaden it into depression as a whole, I'm just interested. Like, I I think I probably experienced this, but yeah. I've never heard of this for dads. So could you maybe explain like what maybe what is depression? Like, how would you define that? And then how does it present? Because I think a lot of men probably suffer from this unknowingly. How do you think
1: about that? I think that's great. So you're absolutely right. Um, It's under discussed, under recognized, uh, also under treated. So it was maybe a decade into my own practice and, training as a psychiatrist before I even learned that postpartum depression was a thing in dads. And so uh, I recognize like I went through the normal channels of training and even then didn't know. Um, But it impacts about 10% of men in the first year post or in during pregnancy and in the first year postnatally. And tends to show up in particular ways, I think, with men that are a little uh, different than in moms. Probably the biggest ways are that the symptoms follow a more male pattern of depression. And I'll explain what that means uh, shortly. They tend to be more insidious and slow. Whereas often the change can be more abrupt in mom. And perhaps it's harder to tell whether it's just that the changes are slower in men or uh, whether it takes longer for us to recognize it when it shows up or for other people to recognize it. But in dads, it's generally thought to peak at months three to six. There are a lot of theories around why that might be, particularly around um, around um, leaves from work and transitions around caretaking. Uh, my hunch is actually that a bigger part of that is just the insidious nature of depression and how it shows up in men and our delay to recognizing it. The slow onset tends to then feel for many men and for their partners and family members, like it's a change to personality rather than a distinct point of pathology. And so often dads can be then blamed for showing up in a particular way, even if they're not, even if they're inherently suffering with, with a depressive episode or or with major depression. Now, by the book, I suppose major depression requires two or more weeks of low mood or change to um, level of joy that we feel, level of pleasure in the things that we experience, plus um, some combination of symptoms with Respect to sleep and appetite and energy and concentration, feelings of worthlessness, guilt, thoughts of not wanting to be around, thoughts of suicide. Um, In reality, in most cases, and this is true for men, depression will last, untreated depression will last on the order of four to 12 months. And so pretty big chunk of life when I first experienced depression, or at least I I think looking back, I probably had already experienced a few episodes before this, um, into adolescence and possibly childhood. But my first diagnosed episode was when I was 22 and I looking back had symptoms for about 18 months, um, before I got help. And that's not an atypical picture for men. Um, the order, on average, is about six to eight months um, before seek before recognition. A few months longer for treatment. So, on average, um, four to twelve months, depending on what you're looking at. Um, many men will describe, won't describe feeling sad or tearful or low, even where A lot more likely to describe feeling deflated, feeling drained, feeling fatigued, as opposed to the kind of common uh, image of or the common expectation of feeling tearful. A lot of men will describe feeling numb, even being angry, having attacks of irritability or anger. There's often a sense of self-shaming or self-criticism, really harsh self-criticism. I found myself not being able to, in my own experience, not being able to make simple decisions because I was so indecisive and unsure of myself. Um, There's also a greater tendency to externalize, to become angry, um, to find ways to numb, whether that's through substances or gambling or risky sex or um, indiscriminate behaviors that we wouldn't normally turn to. That tends to be much more common in men as well. And so for dad, if we're looking at the picture of how this shows up for dad, we're looking at a picture of feeling defeated, deflated, slowly experiencing uncertainty, self-criticism, anger, irritability, restlessness, maybe externalizing along with potential changes to sleep. Obviously, that's a tough one when you're looking at new parents uh, or uh, early in early parenthood, Um, but changes to appetite and energy and concentration and motivation. And affects about one in 10 men in the year postnatally, but... uh, Interestingly, if mom is experiencing postpartum depression, that risk goes up, that rate goes up to one in two to four. So 25 to 50% of men whose uh, female partners are experiencing postnatal depression will also experience postnatal depression in the first year. So it's pretty remarkable. And I, I think... What then drove my attention, my awareness to the importance of potentially helping dads in this space is that there's a shortage of perinatal services for mom, but almost no perinatal services that I could see in my own sort of in the institution in which I was working and the ones with which I was familiar for dads, and so the the rates are. Um, much higher than perhaps most of us expect. And there are very few services that are specific to that.
0: Mm, wow. Yeah, that's a, an alarming number. What yeah. um, what can men do who are like, okay, I'm checking some of these boxes here. And I am I relate so hard to this. I can yeah. remember distinct periods of my life after becoming a dad where I felt all of these things, worthlessness, and um, yeah, yeah I just couldn't do anything and thought that it would be better off without me. And yeah. I just couldn't get anything right. And so like, where can men go? I know you've just said like, th- there really isn't anything, but what sorts of tools and they could be maybe individual tools they can work on by themselves, or yeah. it could be with help. So how can men move through? And I don't want to say get over, cause it's not getting yeah. over. How can men move through a depressive episode whether it's postpartum depression or otherwise
1: yeah the first my first thoughts are naming just even naming the experience for yourself and letting one other trusted person in now there's a lot of stigma there too Especially if the one other trusted person is um, and we're looking at the postnatal period, especially if the one other trusted person is mom and you're like, and you're, you have all of these sorts of thoughts or expectations about not wanting to burden. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and often we tend men tend, and I know I did this and do this to create stories and try to conceptualize really cognitively our experiences. Like I shouldn't be depressed or I don't, I need to not name this because I don't want to burden my wife or my partner or whomever. And that tends to then just allow us to suffer silently and uh, not actually connect, not get help, keep ourselves uh, isolated and insular. And that for many men is a, uh, tends to add fuel to the fire of depression. So opportunities to connect, um, whether that be with uh romantic partner or with family members or with friends that you can trust around sharing this experience. But I want to normalize the value of getting help. There is something really important to yes, to communicating our experiences with family. And also unfortunately we're not always like We're we're human as well. When we interact with family, we have baggage that comes with our family members, um, judgments that might emerge. Uh, Most of us, if we're not necessarily trained to to respond to people who might be suffering in some way or don't have a lot of experience, want to say the right things. And so we fumble around trying to change the experience for the other person. When in fact, um, we sort of, unintentionally undermine it. And so there's value to seeking help from someone who's not in the picture, someone who may just be able to create some space for you to hear, to be heard. So you're effectively not sharing or not shouldering the burden yourself. And so I'd say, the first step is clearly aware some awareness that something isn't right. You don't even have to know what is not right, um, but inviting another trusted person in, and often and that, that is getting help, professional,
0: right, professional help. Yeah, and that's I think that's important that you went there to destigmatize it because again, it it's still I mean after all of these years now of campaigning for mental health and people to be just more accepting of the fact that you know, you may have issues along the way and it's okay to get that help. Uh, it's still like, well, if I do that, I'm like a loser or a failure. I needed to do everything by myself. And even like, I know you mentioned family and friends, the friends piece can be interesting as well. And I've just seen this personally in men's group, um, in a men's group and you know, all of these men have your back. And they're not involved in your life otherwise, and and maybe they're your friends as well. But like, just to have that safe space to be like, "Hey, guys, here's what I'm feeling." Like, I have seen so much power in simply shining a light on what you think is too shameful or dark, or you know, whatever it is causing these episodes of depression. It's like, man, you you shine a, a light on that by by sharing it, and suddenly it's not so scary suddenly people can relate. Suddenly it's like, Oh, it's not just me in here. Um, and so that brings me to the question of how can other people, like you said, people might fumble around. What, what can you say to people you might notice these things in? Cause you know, we shouldn't go around trying to, to fix everyone necessarily, but how can you respond when someone's like, mm-hmm. man, I'm not feeling it right now. Like what, what can we say? How can we maybe ask them to seek professional help? Mm-hmm. How can we support people in our lives who are experiencing this?
1: Yeah. Okay. This is a great question. And Kurt, I want to acknowledge a couple of important things here, at least in the, especially in the men's space, when there is so much expectation that men should show up in a particular way. And a lot of assumptions that we make about other men that might look to have it all sort of figured out based on external appearance there's huge value to the group element, especially for fathers. And so at least in the dad space, but I would say I would say this is true for, for men. The power of groups is enormous, because you're seeing models of vulnerability and authenticity and masculinity in one place. And it doesn't feel like there's such a dichotomy between the two, um, between masculinity and vulnerability or seeking help or having a situation, a challenge. Um, And so most of the work that I have seen emerge for fathers has really been centered around this idea of helping men to get together in group. Because it also over, it also tackles, um, perhaps not tackles, but navigates the challenge endemic to all men, which is that we tend to be isolated and lonely. And so just being in a group, just sort of creating the space and opportunity is a huge shift in terms of the question around. How do we respond to our to our suffering friend? Probably my my first instinct is, um, "Tell me more." Or, um, "I'm here, and um, you can share your experience. You don't have to have the answers. You don't have to find a commonality." There might be some commonalities, but I invite you to hold your tongue. It's probably a matter of saying less and listening more building upon the questions that are the, whatever is shared. If you get curious about something, um, asking about how it feels, how it's experienced, what it's like for them without making assumptions. Probably a couple of important elements have been um, that I share from I suppose my own experience in coaching and and working with men in mental health care is um, to focus on questions of, of helping the other person to explain their experience, to shine light on it from a practical standpoint that often... Requires not shaming, not blaming, not even asking why. Um, why it tends to sort of put people on the defensive a lot of the time. And so just, and it assumes that we have explanations for why we're feeling the way we are. And that's not really what matters. What matters is giving an opportunity for the other person to have a voice. Hmm.
0: Yeah, those are perfect. I love that. Um, it brings to mind a couple of things. One, uh, I'm reading this book by Jason Gaddis, friend of mine and relationship expert, and uh, he has this acronym called LUFU, and I can't remember exactly what it is. I want to say it's listening until fully understood or something like uh, that. that. Um, but the idea is, even you know, this particular instance is very sort of. Deep and impactful. But even in your relationships, your everyday relationships, if you go in there listening to understand rather than to respond, that goes an awful long way. And it also brings to mind, I think it was in this book, The Prosperous Coach, uh, which you may have read, uh, which is actually (laughs) on my desk right now. (laughs) And I think in there, he mentions this idea of a lamppost or a light post. Mm-hmm. And the idea is for coaches, the power isn't in your ability to answer. It's in your ability to listen. And the the idea of the lamppost is that eighty you could get 80% of the way there in whatever coaching session you're in if you were to just like be a lamppost. If someone just like went up to a lamppost and started talking about what's going on inside of them, that would be like 80% of the battle, which just goes to show like being able to speak your truth and then have it heard like there, you can't underestimate that. So I love that. The answer is just like, tell me more. I'm here for you. You know, I'm going to get through this with you or like whatever that can be, whatever supportive thing, and then don't fix it. (laughs) That's not the job at all, man. If I just like could speak to someone without them being like, Oh, well, here's my advice. Like, no, 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 Don't go there. So that that's really good. Thank you. Yeah,
1: Yeah. That's it's huge. Kurt, I think to your point too, uh if there is some element of support or experience that's shared, I will usually ask, not batting a thousand year on doing this, but I I am um will usually ask or let the other person know, I've had a similar experience, would you like to know more? And um or what perhaps um How might it help, if at all, to hear more? Um, Especially if they ask, what do you think I should do? What you sort of quote unquote should do is based on your own sort of priorities and values. There are potentially many things you could do, none of which is necessarily right or wrong. Um, But if, if asked for specific advice, I've often given... What I've done, sticking to I statements, this is how I found myself experiencing this. This is what worked for me. I have gotten professional help. This is how my experience has been on both both ends. For, for me, it's often been a matter of explaining, well, um, what is it like on the other end? And also, what has it been like for me getting help too? Because I think... It's not just, I often get asked questions about, you know, seeking mental health care, but it's important that I also share my own experience in terms of getting it.
0: That's just like a huge part of why I'm even doing any of this myself is just like, here's what I have felt and here's why it's so important to share. Because like, I I, I truly believe I am on these quote unquote other side. Um, I have got through and worked through so many of my, you know, so-called demons and now it's like, by the way, did you know you could get to the other side? Because without that hope, mm-hmm. I think it can be quite despairing for a lot of men, thinking like, well, this is it. I'm stuck like this forever. I'm broken. I'm not good enough. And I'm just gonna like have to keep on trucking until mm-hmm. you know I die of a heart attack or something, which like you know, that, that happened to my dad. Like he just yeah. died one day, like no no pretense, nothing. He just died. And I think a lot of it was a lot of the stuff he was keeping in. And that's you know, mm-hmm. projection, judgment, whatever. But It's hard to understand that, like, you can just do all these things. And so, hearing your own experiences from other people and being like, okay, there is hope, that's such a huge part of all of this for me. All right. I want to talk about emotional intelligence because I think this is sort of a great way to cap it off. Because we've been talking about having men open up and having men share their experience, but often, It's hard to do that if you don't have the language or the words around that. How do you even communicate what you're feeling when your answer is like, well, how are you doing? Fine. Fine. When you're disconnected from your body and you can't even feel any of those things. So I have observed, I think, on the things that you've posted and in my own sort of circle that emotional intelligence is like the bedrock foundational uh, thing that helps us to be able to communicate. So how do you think about emotional intelligence and how are you sort of training your clients if you are on establishing emotional intelligence and like putting a name to the feelings like you just mentioned?
1: Yeah, this is a big area and um, an area that's actually received a lot of attention in terms of relatively In terms of men's mental health Um, And I say that relatively Because I think that there's still a lot of value To uh, There's still a lot of untapped Potential in terms of Research around um, Men and Our experiences of Emotion And behavior And how we fully are aware To them Or of them But it's not uncommon that when asked how are you or how are you feeling, the answer is fine. Or maybe even if someone's a little more self-aware, I don't know. <laughs> and that's like, I, it's a shared experience because I, I can certainly relate to that. There's not much invite to often in our everyday lives to reflect upon our experience of emotion And so there's a lot of material that can be used to learn more about emotional intelligence um, and to appreciate the emotions as they emerge and the lexicon around emotion. Because it's actually quite common that men don't have an awareness to our own emotion or emotions at large but i think in my work generally to avoid it being too academic i usually focus on just what's experienced in the moment and recognizing differentiations between feelings and emotion and thought patterns that often when we describe how we feel we're really we're sort of accustomed to describing a thought rather than how we actually feel in the moment. Um, And so it's often just a recognition of how emotions show up for me physiologically and then putting words to some of those experiences. And so... I might find myself if I am struggling to sort of name that I'm pissed off. Um, I might find myself feeling tight, tense, uh, warm, red, uh, heated, closed off, shallow in my breath, and and often there's an exploration of those experiences and putting words to the emotions behind them just so as to gain some awareness to what that emotion is like and so the challenge is often that we tend to judge our emotions that rather than just naming them or experiencing them we think well i shouldn't be pissed off and let me tell you all the reasons why uh like the other person should have done something differently or I should have shown up differently or why I shouldn't be pissed off or why I'm pissed off. And uh, I usually just recognize that as a distraction from the actual present experience of the emotion. And so usually it's sort of a mindfulness kind of a return back to the experience, whether that's tightness or heat or whatever, and maybe just sitting with it and Uh, naming the experience as it relates to an emotion. What are you feeling in your heart? And then just sitting with it without necessarily having to do anything about it. Uh, And so I'd say that's usually the first step. And then it becomes kind of an iterative process of doing it over and over and familiarizing oneself with what that's like. Because I think often when we try to connect around our emotions, and this is definitely true in romantic relationships, we're connecting our stories of what we think we should feel and what the other person should do rather than just saying, I'm angry or I feel really sad. It's a huge difference in terms of the energy brought between I feel really sad today and the energy that might be brought from something accusatory, like why didn't you do the dishes last night? Or why do I have to take care of the kids again? Just naming the emotion allows for connection without pointing a finger and doing it in ourselves allows us to just experience it without blame without pointing the finger to ourselves or to another person. And then we can communicate it. And in many ways, the burden is shouldered by more than just us. That's usually, I'd say usually the start to it. I I try try to use it experientially and not like get too in the weeds around it. Um, Because it can be this sort of esoteric kind of a thing if it feels like it's too textbooky I think for most men, it needs to be rooted in actual experience.
0: Absolutely. And being able to sit with it is so powerful. And if you are judging or blaming, it's almost like this block to actually feeling and then moving the energy of the emotion. Mm -hmm. And um, one thing that I have seen used with sort of great effect is this feeling wheel as well. I don't know if you use that, but just like giving men this like words to it, Like, I love the physiological aspect because that's even like one step below. Like, what am I just feeling in my body? And then again, sitting with that in presence, being a human being versus a human doing. And I know that's super cliche, but like men do all the time. And it's so hard to just like be, like, I'm not feeling good right now. I got to stop this. I got to do something. I got to whatever. And it's just like, nope, shut up, sit down, feel it. And you know, what comes will come. And so, yeah, man, I love that it's just like sit with it, be present, feel the body feelings, try to name like the emotions around that body feeling. And absolutely, it's an iterative process. Like, it's not gonna happen overnight. This, for me, this took years. And like, you know, that, that can seem daunting, but starting now can have benefits fairly soon, and it has, has very durable benefits the longer you do it, in my experience. Yeah. So I mean, again, like you said, this is a, a huge topic and uh, you know, maybe not gonna be able to dive into all the aspects of it, but I just wanted to get your opinion on that uh, because it's so flippant important. If we're gonna be talking yeah, really. about these things and bring our feelings to professionals or otherwise, you gotta be able to communicate that. And you can't if you don't know the words or the feelings. So yeah, thank you for, for going there.
1: Yeah, thank you for bringing up the feelings wheel. You know, there's some research around um, around the experience of what's called alexithymia. Uh, are you familiar with that term by chance? It's no. Uh, so it's the the inability to describe emotion, and more specifically, our own. But there's been some research around how common it is in men, and it perhaps being. Normative, so prevalent that it's a normal experience as opposed to uh, pathology. Because it's rare we get the invite. Like, it's rare we get the invitation to check in. It's not promoted in the way that we maneuver our lives in most cases. There's an overvalue an overvaluing of sucking it up, bottling it and stuffing it down and plowing through. And so over time we learn it's not important how I feel. And so using understanding there is a lexicon, there is a language around feeling, um, allows us the opportunity to expand upon it, to create even the muscle memory around, this is what anger is. This is how I know I'm angry. It's huge. So thank you for bringing that up.
0: Yeah. It reminds me of something, um, a recent guest, David Stegman said, he said, most men are craving connection, but never get the invite. They want to go deeper, but nobody invites them. So that's what I'm hearing is like very similar language there is like people don't have this invite. And so, you know, seek it out, extend to another man and like try it out, see what happens. And there's risk to that, of course, because, well, what if he doesn't accept it? Or maybe you join a men's group, maybe you get a coach, maybe you get a counselor, a therapist. But yeah, having a place to be invited to share. man. yeah, it's important stuff.
1: Yeah. It sounds like you're doing that with dads. Yeah, I'm. I'm certainly trying. Yeah, (laughs) providing sort of a
0: a, just my own story of like this is all the stuff I've been through, and I think the most powerful things I've shared are like very personal experiences where men can relate and be like, oh, you know, you can get the other side, or you don't have to be perfect, or whatever it is. Um, I mean, I want to talk about all sorts of things with you. Maybe we'll have to do this again sometime. Yeah, that'd be great. OCD and ADHD, like there's so much to go into there, which I know you have spoken to a lot, and so I guess I'll just. Punt it over to you with where can men find more of you or work with you? Because uh, I've been following you on Instagram for a while and I love it. So where can men connect with you, Pierre?
1: Yeah, probably the easiest way is through Instagram. And I'm at uh, my handles at braver.man. And my site is bravermancoaching.com. That's probably the easiest way to to get in touch with me. Cool.
0: Okay. Yeah? Well, thank you very much for taking the time and providing the wisdom and expertise. This has been amazing. So many good insights uh, for men, particularly those struggling, perhaps, or wanting to go from neutral to thriving. So I just love the range of this. So thank you very much, Pierre. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Kurt. I really appreciate it as well.
0: That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. It means the world. To find out more about everything that we talked about in the episode today, including show notes, resources, and links to subscribe, leave a review, work with us, go to dad.work/pod. That's da dw P-O-D. Type that into your browser, just like a normal URL. Dad.work/pod. You'll find everything there you need to become a better